0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, legislative prayer.
1: Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e
0: My name is Jem Newman, and with me today, at least for now, I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hello our primary topic today is legislative prayer in canada and to help us unpack that issue we have an interview coming up with dr teal phelps Bondaroff, the research coordinator for the bc humanist association dr phelps Bondaroff received a phd in politics and international studies from the university of cambridge and holds undergraduate degrees in political science and international relations from the university of calgary thanks for joining us on the show today
2: yeah, it's great to be here. It's, uh, it's nice to talk about legislative prayer. I spent my day doing talking about tax policy and uh, sea cucumber conservation, so it's nice to pivot back to legislative prayer, which is one of my passions.
0: So it's a wide, uh, wide variety of topics that, that you cover in your research.
2: Yeah, well, I wear lots of hats. So I'm right, I work as the uh, Director of Research of the BC Humanists, but uh, I have other roles. I'm the Research Coordinator for the BC Humanists. I'm the Director of Research for Oceans Asia, a marine conservation group out of Hong Kong. Uh, I'm the chair of the Access BC campaign for free prescription contraception. And we've been running that here in British Columbia for the last gosh, four years. Unfortunately, it's taking longer than we'd like. And um, I do a bunch of consulting uh, for marine uh, conservation groups and environmental groups on some urbanism issues. And um, as an academic, my work looks at the strategic use of international law by non-state actors. So groups that do all sorts of fun things in the high seas. And I, I think you may have talked about uh, one of those groups uh, last week. I think so. We'll get to that
0: uh, a little bit later in the interview. But actually, I'm so off...
1: curious about one line in that. Um, so are you, is your group, uh, the free contraception's group behind the Facebook ads that I get that have like uh, an IUD and some birth control pills and they say, should these be free in Canada? Oh no! I would be very interested in that.
2: Wow. Okay. So, well, here's the the story of that campaign, and this might have to be a conversation for another day. And I'm always having sorry for the
1: immediate tangent, everyone.
2: No. So we so the campaign here was set up at this kitchen table where I'm currently speaking from, um, and it's a bunch of young folks from across BC that have been sort of starting off as a Twitter account, and we've made a lot of progress. The reason why I sound a little bit disheartened was. The BC government committed to including free contraception, or the NDP, our provincial government, included it in their platform, it was in their budget recommendations, and we were hoping it would be in the budget this year, but we're, we're still waiting. But since that campaign's been rolling for four years, we've actually uh, have sister campaigns. There's one in Manitoba, there's one in Ontario, and there's been other efforts across the country, and it's kind of spiraled out of control in a very good way. That doesn't often happen in activism. Uh, we had this one moment where municipalities across BC have been endorsing our campaign. And I got a call from a journalist and they're like, what are your comments on this This one city that's endorsed your campaign? I had no idea they'd done it. Someone else had, <laughs> asked, someone else, had asked someone else and the whole thing kind of, you know, kind of got out of our hands. So I don't know who's running those ads. Um, it could be our friends in Manitoba. There's a, a group out there. I didn't think they had the budget for that just yet. So <laughs> um, yeah, I'd love to, love to learn more about that. Very cool, sounds like excellent work. That one is great. I love that campaign because we've introduced a lot of people who work in the medical profession or medical students, um, which Jim, I'm sure you can appreciate, who know a lot about the issue and have really like personal stories of working at the coalface, but have no experience with activism. And so a bunch of us who have more experience with activism and politics have kind of joined forces with them. And it's really exciting to have like a, a friend of mine who's a wound nurse. We met at the Women's March a few years ago, you know, sitting down with me and lobbying a minister. And, you know, giving presentations of budget committees. And so it's been really fun to to work with people. And the stories you get are, some of them are very sad and, and depressing, you know, in the patriarchy and, and capitalism. Capitalism. Ugh. Oh. But, uh, but also some of them are, are, are quite, quite funny. I'll share one fun story with you. And we're tabling at UVic. And uh, this is before... The pandemic getting people to send in letters to their MLAs to urge them to make all contraception free and I had to step away to actually lobby a minister so we left the, the table in the care of one of our amazing volunteers and they bring this one person over who's walking past and they say hey, you know, sign a letter so this woman's there on her phone filling out our form to send in a letter And our volunteer calls over this person's boyfriend. And the boyfriends like, going, no, man, no, man. Contraception's not an issue for me. It's a women's issue. (laughs) And the woman dumped him on the spot. He was like, we're finished. And for the longest time in the campaign, I said, if nothing happens on this campaign, we have saved that poor woman another minute with a misogynistic prick. So uh, we get some good stories like that as well in the campaign. Excellent. Why don't we start off... uh...
0: (laughs) with an overview of what legislative prayer looks like in Canada.
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a bit more background, I suppose. So I approached the BC Humanist Association a few years ago as I was rather annoyed that daily sessions of the BC legislature open with prayer. And this seemed rather problematic to me, given that we're, you know, this, this is a secular state. And so we kind of launched this really large-scale project primarily focused on looking at legislative prayer in the BC legislature. But in the process, we looked at um, the practices across the country. And a lot of people don't realize that daily sessions of legislatures across the country, almost all of them open with prayer. And some of those prayers are very religious and some of them are a little less religious. So just to survey this um, generally, this is stuff you have to look up in sort of the rules and procedure guides, which are always quite fun. So MLAs (laughs) deliver a prayer in British Columbia. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. sorry you say that but lauren was genuinely reading them earlier and going like oh this is interesting
2: I, I my have my jam yeah, <laughs> i haven't have a copy of the bc like rules of procedure and a friend of mine called me up to borrow it when uh, she got a job working for hansard and i was like yes of course you know, this is uh, my moment to shine
3: yeah the manitoba one is online thankfully i, I read it uh, just before this interview well skimmed because it's 150 pages
2: see it's one of those things to have it online and it's another thing to have this like like cloth-bound book on the shelf that costs way too much money unless you find it in a used book store like I did. So so basically, just to give you a brief sort of jaunt across the country as, as far as legislative procedure and prayer, MLAs deliver a prayer of their own devising in British Columbia, Nunavut, and the Northwest Territories. And some of those places will include drumming, um, and that's typically our, our, our friends in the North. And legislatures that open with the Lord's Prayer the overtly Christian prayer are New Brunswick, PEI and Ontario. And Ontario had a big controversy around this in 2008. And they've now opened with the Lord's prayer and a rotating prayer from a very specific uh, different groups. There's an indigenous prayer, Buddhist prayer, Baha'i prayer, Muslim prayer, Jewish prayer and Sikh prayer. And then uh, Nova Scotia has a shortened version of the Lord's prayer because an old speaker was just like, I like my version better because (laughs) um, Alberta has a prayer that's delivered by the speaker and it's, sort of up to the speaker's choice. And so it took us a while to figure this out because sometimes they read the same one. Sometimes they go a little bit off script. Saskatchewan and Manitoba have, a and I'm using air quotes here, non-denominational prayer read by the speaker. Uh, the Yukon has a couple of standard prayers that the speaker reads off. Quebec had prayer up until 1976, but they abolished it. And they now have a moment of quiet reflection. And our friends in Newfoundland and Labrador have never opened with a prayer. So you get a lot of diversity across the country. And... Which makes it really interesting to study, but also some pretty startling (laughs) outcomes there.
3: I I really found your, uh, the BC Humanists, and I I think you wrote it, the little six-page What Each Province Does, I found that really illuminating. So we'll be linking that in the show notes.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. And the reason we put that together was sort of as an educational piece. And also, and if I can (laughs) permit a bit of academic inside stuff. um, We did a lot of research for that. And as you'll notice, it's two pages, but I think two of them are footnotes. And uh, we were writing a a book chapter and we could not fit, we could not hit our word limit. And so we're like, look, if we include all these footnotes, we're gonna go over our word limit. We're just gonna publish another report that we can then quote (laughs) and make available. So we don't have to like show all of our work because we just run out of space. But we made that as sort of a handy, sort of leaflet or thing that people can use to, to learn more about the issue. And um, yeah, it's thank you. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully people will take a look at that. So one of
0: the things that interests me talking about sort of state-sanctioned prayer is that in Canada, we don't have a specific constitutional amendment, unlike our friends down south, that separates church from state. And in fact, our head of state, Queen Elizabeth II, also just so happens to be the the head of a church. So what does the law have to say about legislative prayer in Canada?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'll I'll jump in here and, and do, by the way, I could talk about this stuff all day. As you've seen uh, if you've read our, I'm sure you've seen our house of prayers report, it's 130 something odd pages because partly because I'm very long winded, but also because there's a lot to say about it. A so, after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, part of our constitution are Supreme court rulings and we have a very clear Supreme court ruling on this that took place in 2015. And this is a Saguenay decision. And so maybe I'll just walk through that uh, briefly. And to, and to me, this is a fundamental sort of clarification of the law in Canada as it pertains to separation of religion and government. And for the longest time, we were kind of building up to this. There was big M Drug Mart, M-Solem, a bunch of other Supreme Court rulings that kind of started to chew around the outside of the separation of religion and government cookie. But this is, I guess, the juicy, I don't know, the food metaphor breaks down. But <laughs> um, so basically, um, Saginaw decision, it's December 2006. Alain Simonot, who is a resident in Saguenay, Quebec, objects to that council starting its meetings with prayer. And uh, there's a bunch of back and forth. Procedures of the council are changed, but they still open with a the prayer. They just let people spend time outside, I guess. Kind of like if you, your parents didn't sign your permission form for sex ed in elementary school. And this works its way through the courts and eventually winds up at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has a very very sound and and very firm ruling on this that states that the state has a duty of religious neutrality um, when it comes to the freedom of conscience of religion. And what this basically means is the state cannot pick a side in conversations about religion. It cannot endorse religion, one religion over other religions, religion over irreligion. Therefore, you cannot open a political meeting with prayer. And and, and it says very clearly, like, say, for example, in, in paragraph 137, it says that, you know, even if religious practices are engaged in the state, by the state, are inclusive, they still may exclude non-believers. And you can see how that happens, right? You know, a bunch of people say, we're gonna have a, a non-denominational prayer. All, the, all religious people are welcome. Great, what if you're not religious? Suddenly you're excluded. And one thing we've also found is that when people say religion, they tend to mean a very narrow definition of religion that excludes a lot of non-traditional Western religions. And so that's kind of the, the broader issue. But, you, you know, I'd be happy to dive into Saginae in as much detail as you guys would like. But basically, you know, it says that, you know, you can't have individuals representing the state endorsing religion in their official capacity. And it's really clear. It says this is a democratic imperative. So we're not we're not wishy-washy at all in this context. The, the Supreme Court is very clear that you cannot open a meeting with a prayer. And that basically solidifies the um, th- there's this question. And so one thing there's there's kind of two aspects of the BC humanists uh, research on legislative prayer that we've now followed through on one is prayer in the BC legislature and the other one is prayer in municipalities um, which are, are definitely prohibited and we might need to, to separate those conversations in two sections because despite the fact that we have a very clear supreme court ruling on this it is not clear uh in uh, in, in practice and, and prayer continues in, in legislatures in as we've heard in most provinces
0: one of the things that i think comes up often in these conversations is why is this really worth worrying about? Even if you're not like a firebrand atheist who's who's always one of those Facebook warriors, why should the average secularist be concerned about prayer in legislative sessions?
2: I would probably take the question a step further and say that everybody should care about this, even the religious, for example. Um, and one of our, our first points that we raise in, in considering legislative prayer in the legislature is prayer in legislatures tr- is it trivializes something that people would consider sacred. So I think most religious people who do pray or consider prayer an important part of their spiritual or religious practices would think it would be inappropriate if people were, oh, I don't know, smuggling political content into their prayers. Um, but we saw exactly this. You know, So one of the things, I guess, to, to back up a step, and I'll, we'll get to your, your question directly in a sec. We did an analysis of every prayer in the BC legislature. and I'd love to run through some of the stats with you in a sec. But one of the things that we found was a bunch of them contained like overt partisan swipes. So a couple of my favorites. So we had one that was, uh, thank God for shipping contracts. That was that was cute. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, special. Nothing like being like, oh, I'm a backbencher and I want to smuggle some commentary on the recent public camp content in here, right? One of the other ones that uh, I thought was particularly maybe telling was this is. Uh, I'll give you the date on this. It was 2004. The MLA for Kamloops North, Thompson, Kevin Krueger is giving it his prayer. And and when he's giving the prayer at the moment uh, during, in the world around him, there is a very contentious uh, labor dispute with health workers. But in the middle of his prayer, which is overtly religious and and Christian, he says, and we pray for the HEU members who went back to work and you'll help them to carefully appraise their opportunities and make choices that will be the right ones for themselves and their families. Wow! basically have health workers who've been ordered back to work during a labor dispute being threatened during a prayer in the legislature. <laughs> this is not how you would treat something that people who are religious can, would consider sacred. So I think that when it comes to separation of religion and government, it's an issue that can, should concern everybody. But we can actually see these sort of procedural aspects echoed in government policy. So the BC humanists have been looking at a wide range of issues. And one of those issues is uh, tax policy. So I spent a good portion of my afternoon reviewing a paper on, on tax policy that we're going to release shortly. And that one looks at clergy residency exemptions. So if you were a member of a religious clergy, you can claim some of your living expenses as a tax exemption. Now we already have work from home exemptions. So if you folks have home offices, and some of you like you do, you can write off part of your home office for your taxes. So why do we need a special exemption for the clergy? Well, um, if you go through the records from 1949, when this amendment was passed, you see a, a litany of, M, of members of parliament talking about sponsoring religion and supporting religion um, through the state, through tax exemptions. And so when you have this, this blurring of the separation of religion and government, you ultimately get policies that favor one group over another. Um, and we can see this reflected in other tax policies, like property taxes. And we can even see it in COVID health regulations. Uh, When we were looking at our research on taxes and permissive tax exemptions, we were surprised to learn that several places of worship that overtly violate health regulations or did so during the height of the pandemic, who overtly held meetings of people in enclosed spaces that exceeded the capacities as laid down by health orders were receiving tens of thousands of dollars in tax exemptions. And what we've also found is some health orders will treat religious gatherings differently. Than other kinds of gatherings so we're just reviewing this afternoon you've got social and cultural gatherings political gatherings and religious gatherings and in british columbia i'm um, at the moment i can't speak to other provinces you'll have different numbers for different groups well I, I don't know what the difference between a cultural gathering and a religious gathering is or a book club and a religious gathering except for that we're privileging one over the other and it may not surprise folks that the religious groups are allowed to have a larger gathering now we know also that like religious gatherings are super spreader events. I mean, there's that one church in, in South Korea that was responsible for at one point, like, like 10 or 20% of all the cases in South Korea were from one mega church meeting. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. That's a problem, right? And so, you know, when it comes to legislative prayer, we're not just talking about how you open the meeting, we're talking about how that permeates through policy. And then there's the broader, I guess, the broader issue, which is just having an inclusive welcoming political environment when we talk with the legislature, we often come up against this this traditional argument. Well, it's traditional to open with prayer. Well, it was also traditional to not let women vote, to not let uh, members of different minority groups vote uh, or participate or run for office. Members of the clergy couldn't be members of of government for a long time. So we have these traditions of exclusion and discrimination. That's not a good reason to continue them. And we wanna make sure that our, our legislative settings are welcoming to everybody. And so starting with a prayer is not appropriate. We've had um, we found groups here in British Columbia that reframed their religious gatherings as you're not allowed to have religious gatherings, but you were allowed to have support groups. So they went from a church to a support group because they're allowed to work their way around that. And they have lots of videos of large groups of people engaging in air quotes support or worship without masks on, singing you know singing and 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 spraying. Uh, Speaking moistly as you were um, in in some (laughs) close setting, right? Sorry, that's a throwback. Um, So yeah, it's it's one of those things where we have this weird blind spot in our society that seems to favor some religious groups. Like take the property exemptions for for example. Um, There's a list of of types of properties that are automatically exempted from paying taxes. Those things include like schools and hospitals. Makes sense. And then places of worship. And one of the things that we're looking at is you have to have a benefits test for people who are getting a a tax exemption because they may be providing a benefit to society. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of places of worship that have soup kitchens and charitable work. They do a lot of important stuff in our society, but there's a lot of groups that exclude people for lots of bigoted reasons. And it's probably unconstitutional for the government to be funding them. Like the charter applies to the government. So if you want to start a racist bigoted club, you can, you're a bad person and we're going to judge you, but you can start your club but we can't fund you through the government. We, we can't, the like, charter prohibits it, right? So we've had this very sort of blase approach to religion. It seems okay to be discriminatory or bigoted when it comes to religion. And I think we shouldn't be funding that through our taxes, whether it's directly through the Canada Summer Grants Program or whether it's indirectly through tax exemptions. So yeah, I think this stuff all kind of permeates through society and it has quite a lot of harms. Amen. <laughs> I'm here in Saanich and I did a sort of a survey of the different places of worship that took tax exemptions. RUU church, I think got $38 in tax exemptions. One day. <laughs> um, the, they were the lowest recipient. The highest yeah. recipient was, um, and it's probably will come as no surprise, the Salvation Army. Um, and mm. 117,000 ish dollars of my tax money is going to support a homophobic organization that has a pretty dark history of excluding folks. That's a bit of a problem when I'd rather that money went to, I don't know, building roads, <laughs> Well, let's give well, that
1: money to an organization who's going to help people without discriminating.
2: Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? And give, so- give people homes, give people money directly. <laughs> yeah, and so we've just, we've just been talking about, like, just have a benefits test. And, it, you know, I've, I spent a large portion of this week writing a grant for some of my conservation work. And, yeah, it was a pain, but, like, we're asking for a lot of money. So there's a lot of hoops you should jump through. Like the worship receive lots of money. So they should jump through at least a few hoops to justify that money. I know we kind of digressed there, but if you want, I can take us down to sort of a, a deeper dive into our, our look at prayer in the BC legislature or municipal prayers. Yeah. Why don't we start with the legislature and then maybe branch out into the municipal? Yeah, perfect. So I'll, I'll kind of run you through some of our stats. And um, the really exciting thing about this project was it was... We crowdsourced a lot of our, our transcription work and a lot of people were involved. So that was very kind of a, a nice feature where we got to engage with the BC Humanist members and volunteers to, to participate in like a larger project.
0: I would be interested in hearing more about how you put this research together.
2: Yeah, let's start there. I'll take you on a journey then. Let's, let's go on an adventure of, of legislative prayer. So, so basically, again, the background is I, I, I do... We do politics in Canada and was unhappy to find out that the BC legislature was starting with prayer. So I got in touch with the BC Humanists and we launched this program. So we we recruited 52 volunteers from mostly BC, but we had some people from further afield. And we had to transcribe 877 prayers. Now, the reason we had to do that was the content of the legislature is Hansardized, which uh, is a new vocab word for folks out there, which means uh, it's transcribed into Hansard, which is the written record of the legislature. Um, it's named after the Hansard family that did it for the United Kingdom Parliament for, for hundreds of years. So Hansardized is a, is a fun, fun expression and if you ever want to get Hansardized, you can go to Victoria when you're safe to do so or your legislature. Ask your member of legislature to introduce you in the house and they'll introduce you in the house and you get included in there. However, the one thing that is not captured in the in Hansard are prayers. And this reflects a tradition from the United Kingdom of treating prayers as a personal thing. As a, as a sort of a personal practice between an individual and their God. And so in the UK, they will actually exclude guests from the house when they do their prayer. Um, and then they'll invite guests in. And by guests, I mean journalists and, and members of the public. So just members of, of parliament are there. Um, and so that seems like a problem if you're going
0: to be including political content in your in prayer.
2: And so interestingly enough in, in BC, it's not hansardized but it is on the video record and they don't exclude people. So we okay. basically had videos going back to whenever they started releasing videos which uh, goes back to october 2002 and so we had to go through each of those videos watch them transcribe them um, and i had a lot of our volunteers transcribe things twice to check for uh, accuracy our volunteers are very good i think we had like a five wow. error rate yeah I didn't that tell is them. a
1: lot of boring stuff to watch
2: it starts with like six minutes of like sort of generic classic music and then there's like a slideshow, which is a very in quality. And then they walk in, there's a mace, a tricorn hat, and eventually you get to the prayer. So yeah, we had one amazing volunteer do about 200 of them. And I I, I sat down for coffee with her when she came to visit Victoria and was just like, I don't know how you could, you could do it. I could barely do two of them without going slightly batty. And so there, there's two kinds of prayers that are delivered in the BC legislature. And, and again, for folks listening outside of British Columbia, it's different in every province. Uh, and so for the pro- if your province has just the Lord's Prayer, the transcription's pretty easy, it's just the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's two kinds of prayers. On a regular daily session, a prayer is delivered by an MLA. And it's a, an MLA, it's sort of, sort of out behind the black box that is the internal uh, management of the legislature. Um, and on days when we have a speech from the throne, the speech of the prayer that is, is delivered by a guest and those guests can be almost inevitably are members of the clergy and um, or indigenous folks. And so we have this large sample of prayers, we transcribe them all, and then we code them. And so I'll I'll walk people through some of the social science sides of things here. So we had two individuals read every single prayer and code them based on numbers of criteria. So they would look at criteria like religiosity, does it mention the name of a god, uh, does it have uh, certain quotes in it? Does it reference religious material? Uh, does it use languages that aren't English? Things like that. And so we have all these different criteria. So each each prayer would have a bunch of codes associated with it. We'd have two people do that for every prayer. And if they were in agreement, that was cool. And if they disagreed, mm-hmm. a third person would recode that prayer to make sure that we got the answer right. So we in the end, we had 866 prayers and 23 throne prayers, which are the prayers delivered on the, the speech from the throne days. And so that was kind of our overview. And then we ran the numbers and uh, started finding some very interesting things. I should also add, by the way, that in British Columbia, while MLAs can deliver a prayer of their own devising, they also had a sample list of prayers um, with like five sort of generic wishy-washy prayers on them that MLAs could just read off of. And so that kind of sped the process up sometimes because you could kind of just The prayer was the same every time. And they would sometimes mix and match and and, and add those together. And we actually found that 50% of all the MLAs used one of those standard prayers or sample prayers, as uh, the speaker preferred us to call them. Mm -hmm. And and some of them got creative and they would change things around a little bit. Um, But that was kind of the the general overview of the prayers themselves. The the prayer that came with the frame. Yeah. And, And I should add, by the way, if people are looking for the new regulations. So, Lauren, if you were looking over the regulations for BC yesterday, for example, they've actually changed. So as a result of our report and advocacy, the BC legislature, we got a small victory um, and they changed, they made two big changes uh, very recently. got my notes here on this one. Um, two big changes were that they went from prayers to prayers and reflections, very, you know, very generous, very expansive. Um, and they also expanded the sample prayer list. So now that it's a much longer list that actually includes prayers that are pre-written from specific religious groups. And one of the fun things that we've gotten to do and we will be doing moving forward until the practice is abolished is every two years we run the stats again with all the new prayers that have subsequently been delivered to see how changes occurred and how those procedural changes influence the content of the prayers. And we have have a book chapter coming out soon called Change in Prayers that looks at exactly that. And uh, interesting things around like gender, age and prayer as well.
3: Where is that uh, chapter being published?
2: That's coming out in a edited book and... It's been about a year and a half, so I'm not really sure what's going on. Academic, <laughs> take a bit of a while. So I don't know what it's going to be called, but it's a, it's an edited book on Canadian parliamentary politics. And uh, it's a good quantitative dive into uh, into the fun, fun, fun I guess, uh, adventure <laughs> of, uh, of statistical analysis. Cool. Well, we'll have to have you back once that's published. And- yeah, yeah. And, and it's we were really fascinated to see the change. But let, let's jump into the original the original stats, and if you guys will, will sure. indulge me. So one thing that was really startling was... 91.9% of the prayers ended in amen. And that's interesting because that far exceeds the number of prayers that were found to be religious. What our, our thought there was, if someone invites you to deliver a prayer and you have the option of saying whatever you want, most people color within the lines and will deliver something that's prayer. Like even if they're giving a secular invocation, they'll still end in amen because of the sort of social pressure that's associated around with delivering a prayer. And that was kind of eye-opening. But overall, we found that 71.2% of the prayers were religious. Now, we had very conservative coding. So if something said God or used vague terms about Lord, we didn't code that as belonging to a specific religion because those are language that's used by multiple religions, even though we could probably guess what religion they're talking about. But we were able to identify the religion for 21.7% of the prayers. Of the prayers that we could identify the religion for, we found that 93.1% of them were Christian. So over, <laughs> overtly Christian. Yeah, like these are, you know, in his name, washed in the blood, kind of, you know, overtly Christian language. Um, and that's 20.2% of prayers overall. And, and so that's kind of an interesting observation in and of itself. It does make sense. Um, however, it doesn't match up with the demographics of British Columbia, particularly with respect to non-believers, particularly with respect to other religious groups. For example, uh, six make up a huge percentage of, of BC I at 4% last time I checked or more, and there wasn't a single prayer that we could identify as coming from from Sikhism. So that's um, not exactly um, anything lining up. We did also, because we're kind of political science nerds, and it's interesting, we looked at party affiliation. And um, so for folks who aren't in British Columbia, we have a kind of a two-party system, two-and-a-half-party system. There's the NDP, which is our sort of left-of-center party. The uh, BC Liberals, which are our sort of right of center party the bc greens which are all over the place party and they only have one or two seats in the legislature um so we kind of excluded them from our, our party analysis just because it, it made things very complicated otherwise and they only had two prayers anyways um but we found that uh, bc or ndp mlas were slightly more likely to give a secular prayer um compared to liberal mlas however liberal mlas were way more likely to give christian prayers 25.4 uh, percent of their prayers were christian compared to 9.2% of prayers by um, NDP MLAs. And, and I should note that we had four categories. We had not a prayer, we had secular prayer, non-sectarian prayer, and sectarian prayer. So uh, not a prayer was like, I don't know, Lana Popham from MLA up here on the peninsula decided to read a poem, um, or uh, that, that doesn't count as a prayer or anything. Um, secular invocations were, were statements that weren't religious, but would generally be seen as sort of a invocative statement. Um, non-sectarian prayers were were religious, but we couldn't identify the religion. And then, secular or sectarian prayers were overtly religious prayers. So, you know, in the Father's name, praise Jesus, and that kind of thing. And overall, we found that the number of Christian prayers was going up. And I guess if you were to draw one conclusion, we can jump into some of the stats too, because there's some other. Fun stuff and our report's massive. <laughs> the best part about the report is we've got quantitative analysis, we've got legal and philosophical analysis, there's like 24 pages of coding so people can replicate our work. All oh, the, yeah. the coding and data is online so if anyone else wants to look at say like a gender analysis or an age analysis of religiosity it's all there and I, I would hope that someone would look at gender. There's some really cool stats there but yeah we're it's a it's a pretty um, tofu filled report here if I can say so. Um, But yeah, overall, we found that fewer MLAs were delivering prayers, that the prayers were getting longer and becoming more religious, and that the prayers didn't reflect the demographics of British Columbia, which I think comes as no surprise. Um, And and there was, and this is something, a couple other trends that we identified um, were, you know, as I mentioned, 10 prayers had overtly partisan content in them. Half the the MLAs really like using the pre-written prayers, so they're like kind of reading off a script, which is kind of boring. And... The number of uh, MLAs that were reading off scripts was going down. And when we ran the numbers, um, we had this, this roster as to who was giving more prayers. And there was, like, one MLA up island that was giving, like, he gave the most prayers in every single session. He finally retired and he's now the mayor of uh, (laughs) Nanaimo. And so it kind of, we've now have this post um, Leonard Krogh era where we can actually look at stats where this one guy isn't giving almost all the prayers. Somebody else has to volunteer. (laughs) Right. And so the internal structure, we don't quite understand, but it it does actually raise questions about like who gives prayers, right? It's not like a a set list, they volunteer. And so some of the MLAs will give more prayers than others. And it does become a bit self-selecting. And so we found that like MLAs who are more religious probably want to deliver prayers as opposed to MLA's who are not more religious maybe they don't want to give a prayer and so they don't volunteer so there's some really interesting sort of trends going on there um and yeah and, and i guess the last thing i'll mention before we can um but we also looked at other language content and we found that there wasn't a lot of other languages being mentioned and it, it's particularly indigenous languages and so one of the things that uh, my colleague um, ian bushfield who's our executive director for the bc humanists um he and i actually wrote a prayer uh, a report looking exclusively at Indigenous content in the BC legislature. And I think this is particularly salient given some of the news we've had in Canada and, and sort of ongoing need for reconciliation is we're opening sessions of the BC legislature with prayer, but not with a territorial acknowledgement. And it's been, it happened twice. Um, I think Spencer Chander Herbert, who's one of the, who was the acting uh, speaker during the height of COVID at one point, someone gave him the floor because he was chairing and He opened with a territorial acknowledgement, because that's what we do in British Columbia, and it's the respectful thing to do. And it was sort of the first time that we've ever seen it happen in the last 10 years or 15 years. And Mm -hmm. the report that that Ian and I wrote, we weren't arguing that there should be a territorial acknowledgement. We were saying, here's information we have, you know, that there's very little Indigenous content being brought up. If people wanted, especially Indigenous folks, would like to have a territorial acknowledgement, then that's something that we should explore and, and work with communities to develop but it is kind of problematic that we're opening with a religious prayer and not something that would be more constructive for for bringing the country together and and maybe moving towards reconciliation a little bit. Um, So that was kind of, I mean, there was something promising insofar as Indigenous content was increasing, but we're still talking about, like, individual words and one MLA who would end their their prayer with sort of a uh, Coast Salish sort of invocation, like a hushka, sort of like a thank you. That's not meaningful content. So there was a lot of we queried the data quite heavily, if I can <laughs> summarize.
3: Yeah, and there's a lot more unseated territory in BC, yeah. in yeah, in what we yeah. call BC, than in fact, what we call in Manitoba. the, the, entirety of the yeah. province,
2: mostly. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, we, we kind of explored that issue in in a lot more detail, and it's 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 obviously like we're we're two sort of settler dudes out here on the west coast, so it really wasn't for us to say like, hey, we should definitely open the BC legislature with prayer. What we were more saying was here's how little indigenous representation is taking place. Not only just like the content of the prayers, but like how few indigenous MLAs we've had. And if people would like to do something with this, they can. Uh, And that was kind of as far as we got on that.
3: It's important work to help people get started.
2: So if someone takes you up on that. Well, and and one of the things that was was interesting too, is you do have most of that indigenous content being delivered in throne prayers from invited guests. And other jurisdictions have done different things. So, you know, The the culmination of our report was, look guys, abolish this. This is ridiculous. You don't have the ability to like, this is just, it's always gonna exclude people no matter what you do. But there's other alternatives. So for example, as I mentioned, Quebec has a moment of silence. That's not unreasonable. You know, get your head in the game. You can check your phone if you want to, but we're gonna take a minute to like, just hunker down here before we get to the business of governing this province. But you could also do what Scotland does. And Scotland does a thing where they invite individuals to give an invocation, I think it's once a week, and they invite those people based on the demographics of their jurisdiction. And so they actually had someone give an invocation, secular invocation in BSL because why not? Um, and they've had different religious groups represented, different philosophical groups represented, you know, humanists and, and atheists and, and, and sort of minority religions. Um, and so that was another way of doing it. You can invite guests in. So, you know, in, in British Columbia, you could conceivably just invite once a week, for example, a different elder to give a territorial acknowledgement for their territory and not just an acknowledgement, but like share their experience or, or do whatever's appropriate from their cultural context. One thing I will say for Scotland was despite the fact that they represented accurately the different religious groups in Scotland, they were still hugely skewed towards gentlemen um, and male-identifying people such that it was, I think it was like 70% of the people delivering the, the content were still men. So there's, again, there's really no way of doing it so that's representative and it doesn't really serve a purpose other than to reinforce religious hegemony and to discriminate and exclude people. So it's one of those things that we were advocating for just abolish it.
0: It is an interesting approach because in addition to the kind of, uh, kind of obvious fairness like that could appeal to to anyone like it could also serve to remind these people of the diversity of constituents that they're there to represent. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like you do end up slicing the pie finer and finer and finer as you're trying to divvy up all of these prayers among right. all of these. Like
1: you were saying earlier, there were like what five other bonus religions that were allowed to be represented occasionally, but <laughs> clearly that is not a representative list of all of Canada or all of BC.
2: Oh yeah, and and like what's was interesting there is like here in I'm in Sandwich and just south of us is Victoria, and they open their municipal meetings with art. Like they'll have a piano player do a piece or Highland dancers do a dance or a poet have a poet laureate and a youth poet laureate. So they'll do kind of an art performance to open the session. And I thought like, what a way more meaningful thing to do to invite a young poet to present their poetry to city council. It doesn't take them more than time than it would take to read a prayer, but it's a huge boost to that poet's experience delivering their content. It shares art. I mean, it invokes the numinous without invoking the religious. How cool is that, right? That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. And like, you could do that in Parliament. I mean, I mean, again, you're starting to, you could just do nothing, right? But if you wanted to like highlight artists or like substantive content, like, quite frankly, we just finished running the stats on like annual clergy wages in this country. And I think the average wage for like a professional clergy member was like $45,000 a year. I have a lot of friends and family in the art world that would love to make that kind of money and maybe get a bit more exposure for their work so that they could. So, you know, maybe we have to we definitely have to shift our priorities that's for sure
0: i can already imagine like if especially we did this on like a federal level just the deluge of complaints that we would see on on twitter and facebook about this this thing that this poet said or this piece of art that was shown that was sacrilegious or (laughs) it's exhausting just thinking about it
2: well then now you're now you're talking about the whole thing of like you know balderizing uh art right like oh it's gonna be art but it has to be like non-judgmental art non-controversial art and of course exactly. like we all immediately thought of like a slam poet getting up there and attacking trudeau for dragging his feet on conversion therapy right i mean like yeah you know, I, I doubt that the uh that the house leaders are going to do that although i would welcome it
3: well, I've thought about getting into politics, so maybe.
2: <laughs> hey, you know, political speech, and, speech and, and slam poetry, honestly, I think slam poetry is sometimes better delivered, but uh, I don't know, if uh, was it Romeo Saganash in Question Period a few years ago, uh, questioning on Trudeau on, uh, on his work on indigenous water rights, and uh, that was pretty poetic, even though it was short and full of profanity. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's a fine art to it.
0: So why don't we uh, talk a bit more about the municipal prayers?
2: Yeah, let's jump into that. Yeah, so and if people are interested in learning more, our report's called House of Prayers, and I'm sure that folks can can easily find the, the notes on that. And um, it's, BC is unique insofar as we have the transcripts of those prayers. Uh, the only other places that they would be possible would be the north. They actually turn their cameras off for hand search, so you actually couldn't do the transcriptions. So we do have a really unique data set. And I guess if there's any data nerds out there or researchers who want to play around with our data, um, you can check out the BC Humanist website and, and explore the data set and see what you can do with it. Because I, as I said, there's some really cool stuff that you can query. We weren't interested, for example, um, well, I originally had my coders look at like the, the flavor of prayer, because there's different kinds of prayers. There's prayers of thanks, there's prayers asking for something, there's, there's lamentations. And we started going into that and then we kind of had a pause, a moment for pause when we were like, we actually don't, this is too much data. We can't possibly publish, use this for anything um, at the moment. So there's this huge wealth of information that people can look at. Um, And of course it's, you know, amateur, amateur people doing prayers and it's, there's some pretty funny ones in there. So so returning back to Saginaw. So, oh yeah, I should answer one other question because you might be asking, okay, so the Saginaw decision that I started off talking about prohibits opening a political meeting with prayer in Canada. So why did our project have to happen, right? Like we went back to 2002, but there was a prayer that opened the BC legislature like a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, wasn't this already solved? That is solved? a fair
1: question, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: and, it's one of those, and it's one of those things where we have to dive into our parliamentary procedure guides again. And basically this has, so it's been tested in the courts at the municipal level through Sagaday but the issue hasn't been tested in Supreme Court at the provincial or federal level. I forgot to mention that the federal government, uh, parliament and senate, open with a prayer in French and English. That's uh, a sort of lengthy religious prayer, and you can, you can easily find that one online. Why do sessions still start with prayer? The, the main reason is because we just haven't quite finished our legal case. <laughs> but, but but the real answer is that it has been touched because of what, what seems to be called you know, parliamentary privilege, right? So parliamentary privilege in the legislature works insofar as MLAs, elected officials, MPs, can't be sued for things they say in the House, and so they have a lot of privilege that protects speech in the House, such that they're they seemingly not protected by the Charter when it comes to prayer. Um, now, there's some some lower level court decisions on this that are kind of eye-opening, and I, I think we have to kind of look at pr- uh, parliamentary privilege, and the answer really is parliamentary privilege does not protect discriminatory action. So, yes, it allows people to say things in the House, but Uh, One of the lower court judges mentioned this, and I'll sort of paraphrase it. It's basically, you know, if there was a parliamentary procedure that said women cannot participate in the legislature or members of this religion can't participate in the legislature or people with this color of skin can't participate in the legislature, that would be wrong. And it would have to be illegal and unconstitutional. You couldn't use parliamentary privilege to protect discriminatory action. And so excluding people based on religion or non-religion falls into the same category right? And so this just hasn't been tested in the courts. But really, I think there will be some legal action or decisions made at some point in the middle future exploring this because it would make zero sense to have parliamentary privilege being so strong that it would protect like overtly discriminatory action.
3: It goes against what it is on its face, because yeah. it's meant to protect people from discrimination inside the legislature and from what they say. So why would it then... I mean, they can twist it any way they want, but it's meant yeah. to protect. I'm going to peter off here because I have no way to finish well, that sentence.
2: And it gets into the minutiae of, like, like legal, legal theory around parliamentary procedure. But, like, we had a controversy about this in British Columbia, for example. And this is something I'm getting excited about and I'm hoping to do a project on. This is another fun vocab word for people, which I didn't know until a few months ago. A sumptuary law Eww. is a law pertaining to dress code. <laughs> Actually, if I, if I suddenly hit a nerd subject, we can take a deep dive into. Oh, uh,
1: Lauren and I both participate in the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism. So we know a lot about sumptuary laws well, in our particular time period. Yeah,
2: you probably know more than me then. Um, but basically, BC had a controversy because they had like incredibly sexist sumptuary law in the BC legislature. So it was like, gentlemen, you must wear a suit. Women, you must cover your shoulders. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? Like, this is just, this makes zero sense. This is, this is, was it 2015 or whatever Trudeau used to say, right? Like this is just bonkers. And you see a lot of laws and procedures in parliament that are still kind of borderline discriminatory. So like, yeah, BC, you women can now kind of dress how they want. Um, but if you're a guest in the legislature, you still can't wear a hat, which seems kind of trivial until you realize that some people wear hats for religious reasons some people wear hats because they like wearing hats Um, and some people wear hats because they have a cultural reason for doing so and if you go to ottawa for question period and i highly recommend it if you ever get to go to ottawa go to question period it's great to sort of see government in action they will make you take off your hat unless it's for religious reasons or cultural reasons what are cultural reasons what does that even mean right and so you have the state making decisions about what counts as a religion and what what we find when you start peeking beneath the, the jurisprudence on this and the regulations and the rules is the government doesn't have a definition of what counts as religion. We don't actually have a functioning definition of religion. And that makes sense because if you come up with the definition of religion, I can probably find a religion that kind of doesn't meet that, those criteria, but it's still probably a religion, you know? And also, and this comes back to the fundamental decision to Amsalon, which is the state can't be the arbiter of religious dogma. Right, so let's say uh, Gem and I have a conflict about like our, our small cult that we've suddenly started uh, a cult around beard growing and I maintain that, that beards have to be square and, um, and he says that topiaries have to be round um, and, and we beard one each, uh, each other back and forth um, and eventually we, want, we take this to the, to the courts. Who's the state to adjudicate our weird beard-based spiritual regulations? It puts the government in an uncomfortable position, right? And on its face, it's not an appropriate thing for the government to do. So, so anyways, just to, uh, my colleague Ian and I had a, a paper called "Arbiters of Faith," where we took a deeper dive into this. And I'll, this is, I guess, we'll segue into the municipal stuff in a second here. But basically, when the the origins of this this report were that we were doing this study, anyways, and then we get an email from the Speaker of the BC Legislature who says, "Hey, we're doing consultation around prayer." We know you guys have been asking us some questions about it. If you're able to get in a letter as part of our consultation um, in the next 10 days, then you can contribute to this ongoing conversation about the future of prayer in the BC legislature. And so we're like, okay. So we, we wrote this 136 page report that was the research was done, but the writing wasn't, we wrote that in, in, in 11 days, submitted that as our you know, funked that down on the desk as our submission. And then we got to thinking about it and we thought to ourselves, how can the state actually decide who to reach out to for that consultation? They don't have a definition of religion. So do they just reach out to like the prominent religions, the religions they know? Did that include sort of new spiritual movements? Did it include less popular religious groups, groups they're not familiar with? Within a a single church organization, did they talk to the head of the church? they talk to the people who were beneath that person? How could they decide? And critically, if we were to submit a sample prayer, and another person was to submit a sample prayer, apart from spelling and grammar, how could they decide between the two? Because they're not in a position to say this is a good prayer that's gonna reach some sort of deity and this is a bad prayer that's gonna reach no deity at all. The state can't make that adjudication. And so even the act of trying to reform legislative prayer was hugely problematic and put the state in an incredibly awkward, both uh, legally and also just practical (laughs) uh, challenge. They they couldn't physically and, and practically and legally evaluate the, the prayers that they were being that were being submitted to them, um, so it's just sort of one of those challenges that, that comes up when you look into legislative prayer. But uh, I mean, I, I, as I said, I could probably talk about this stuff till the cows come home. Why don't we uh, Why don't we jump into municipal prayer then? Let's do it. Brilliant. Okay, so this is still fresh. We're presenting uh, a version of this report uh, to a conference in a few weeks. So basically, uh, Sagney comes in two thousand fifteen. So all municipalities should cease to introduce their sessions with prayer from that point on. Now, you know, it's gonna take a few months for the message to Peter through, and yeah, fair enough, it didn't reach you know Lumby in the interior for a few months, that makes sense. But after three or four years, you would expect that the Supreme Court ruling that prohibits all legislative prayer at municipal meetings should be followed, right? You, you would expect if you weren't as pessimistic as I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your pessimism is, is, is well-founded. So. <laughs> The the
0: background. Right I'll have to uh, I'll, I'll clip that one
2: and play that for my wife. <laughs> there you go. Oh god, I've become a ringtone here, right? Um so it just so happens that I'm, you know, I I do a lot of local politics here, and I'm at our open uh, watching our inaugural meeting here in Saanich, and they don't open with a prayer. They open with two prayers. Right? <laughs> and I think to myself, that, that doesn't seem right. So we had some amazing summer researchers, and and I have to give a bit mad props to our team because we had some some great summer researchers look at this and Um, Adriana Thom, who's my my colleague on the VC Humanist research team, has, I think, I could confidently say, looked at more municipal websites than anyone else in Canada ever. Um, Because basically what we did was we looked at every municipality in the country with a population of over a thousand, or the top 50 municipalities by population in each province and territory. We scoured their records for their inaugural meetings and their regular meetings to see if they opened with a prayer. And, and, that was, and that was a long process. And now some folks might come from larger cities that have like functioning websites that have only two fonts on them and don't have <laughs> weird you know, MySpace graphics, right? Um, and then some people might come from municipalities that kind of don't.
0: As luck would have it, I was looking just last night at a, the website for the municipality of St. Rose, Manitoba, and uh, it had upcoming events listed for 2011. Wow.
2: Wow. <laughs> Fantastic! Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah, no, no under construction like man digging
2: gifts, but uh, but it was pretty close. <laughs> oh no! Oh, that's that's that is yeah. There, there are some really bad ones out there. And anyhow, so we went through them all. We started with British Columbia, and so again, there's two kinds of prayers, right? There's the inaugural meeting prayers when there's a bit more pomp and circumstance. There's bagpipers and national anthems and judges swearing people in, and then there's your regular sessions. And we found a lot of diversity across the country. So at the moment we've published a report on British Columbia, which I'm I'm sure we can include links to. And our plan is to produce a report for every single province, territory, or region in the country. Some of the regions have very few prayers, so the reports will be sort of summaries. Some of them have a lot more prayers and we've taken like detailed dives into them. Uh, But our report that we released for British Columbia, we found that 23 municipalities opened with their inaugural sessions with prayers in 2018. Um, They were 100% of those prayers were Christian and 73.9% of them were men. Um, we didn't find any that had prayer in their regular sessions. That's that's 23 uh, municipalities out of our, what is it, 160, 180, is more than you should have. And some of those, there was no sort of order between them size-wise, so we had small municipalities and larger ones. We didn't really have any uh, kind of rhyme or reason to it. Um, But yeah, 23, and we had uh, four we couldn't identify. And there's always some edge cases, but it's worth mentioning where, you know, some municipalities will open with the territorial land acknowledgement, which is not a prayer, obviously. Some of them would start with the traditional welcome, which included sort of prayer-like elements. And then some of them would start with Indigenous welcomes that were overtly religious and Christian. Um, And so that was, there was some interesting tension there. That's something that we're, we're exploring in some of our later reports, which is this sort of nuanced interpretation of indigenous welcomes and and what does it mean and and the the contact between religion and uh and and culture in that context so we've excluded those because they're a different category uh, but there are a few of those in each province mostly in british columbia where we're like ah this isn't this isn't a prayer it's an indigenous blessing and it's it's not quite the same category but we do flag those in the report so basically i can walk people through the the country if folks would like as a quick quick jaunt Um, yeah and it is, it is worth notice- noting, right? So in, we transcribed all the prayers that we could find. A lot of them were just delivered. They were just me- mentioned in the minutes. But for example, you know, we have transcriptions for a bunch of them in British Columbia, and you start getting some rather eye-opening results. And like I said, we identified them all as Christian. And when I say we could identify them as Christian, they were being delivered by predominantly male members of Christian clergy. So that was one of our primary methods, but you can also see it captured in language. So this is from, uh, from Dawson Creek in 2018. It's delivered by Reverend Roche, um, who is a Dawson ministerial, from the Dawson Ministerial Association. And he says, you know, let's pray, Father God, we lift up the mayor and council. We ask that you bless them, that you give them your divine wisdom, that you be with them, that you protect them. And as they serve our city and God be with them throughout this term, in Jesus name. Amen. So that's the first thing that, that counselors will hear. And here, here's one more. This is, the content of these, some of them becomes very evangelical and very um, aggressively religious. This, this, is, this is one from Parksville. Um, it was delivered by Pastor Dr. Paul Hawkes in 2018. And uh, it reads, let's pray. Sovereign God, thank you for your concern for those who live in Parksville, evident today by your provision of this leadership for your community. Ooh. Our community, sorry. We do pray now for those you have placed in authority over us, I pray these things so that we, all the residents of Parksville, from the youngest to the oldest, might live peaceably and quiet lives. In Jesus' name, amen. That's some mm, divine right of king stuff. Yeah, there's some theocratic undertones that are that are alarming in that kind of content. And so you you do tend to get these quite aggressive religious content, and we've seen some very evangelical religious ones coming out of Ontario predominantly. So uh, taking a journey across the country from over here in British Columbia, heading towards you find folks in the middle of the country, heading on east in Alberta, there's 178 municipalities with a population of over 1000, eight of them opened their inaugural sessions with prayers, and seven of them opened their daily sessions with prayers. Um, And we also had some invocations and reflections being uh, one invocation reflection opening each session.
3: Do you know if the seven and the eight were correlated, or are they wildly different municipalities?
2: There's a bit of both. So some of them are the same municipality, some of them aren't, and that's a really good question. And we um, ha- we're going to have some more detailed analysis of that in our report. But we weren't, we, you know, just because in, in British Columbia it was just the inaugural meetings, and then across the country there's significant diversity. So mm-hmm. for British Columbia, yeah, it's um, seven seven general meetings start with prayers. There's four minutes of silence, one invocation, and one reflection. So some of those are the same municipalities, but some of them aren't. And so there's, there's doesn't seem to be any um, consistency. And there doesn't seem to be any consistency between like size of municipality. Now there's some municipalities, you can probably think of a few in town uh, in your province that are like, oh, that one definitely opens with a prayer. But then there's also some that you're like, really that one, like here in, in BC, most people would consider Victoria to be relatively progressive. They start with art on the regular sessions, but their inaugural sessions still started with prayer. Hmm. Um, and so that's kind of, there doesn't seem to be any correlation between size of municipality, geography, and that's a level of analysis that we haven't been able to run yet. Moving over to Saskatchewan, uh, we have 113 municipalities with a population of over 1,000, and six of them started their inaugural meetings with prayer, and two of them have prayer on a regular daily basis, at the regular meetings, rather. That is way lower than I expected. Yeah, now I, I should note that we, we, we have been unable to find the information for Decent percentage of municipalities. So, for example, in Saskatchewan, we couldn't find inaugural meeting minutes for thirty-five uh, municipalities, and we couldn't find daily uh, sessions for eighteen municipalities. So, so that there's means like the confirmed cases of prayer. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I mean, on my my amazing like team like would go through the minutes, and if we couldn't find the minutes, they'd go through the agendas, and if they couldn't go through the agendas. We'd find the video, the audio. We'd call up the municipalities and hound them, and we get these really you know confused emails from some municipalities in the north where like it's the mayor the clerk and the police chief is the same person and they're like who are you emailing me from victoria what's going <laughs> on uh, so there's some, some fun correspondence there cool. just like
1: very briefly how do you get funding to do this or is it 100% volunteer this whole
2: survey so the, the house of prayers report, the original study was totally volunteer. I just got in touch with the humanists and were like, I would like to do this, this is an mm-hmm. important project. Um, and then we had some summer students do a lot of the heavy lifting with the coding and they were paid better than I was, which is great. Yes. <laughs> um, pay your students friends. Um, yeah. And uh, and then now uh, we actually, the BCHA has had some amazing support from our members. So we're funded by members and anyone can donate to the organization I believe and we had some bequests that that really helped bolster our, our coffers to allow us to to fund myself. So I'm on sort of a small, small retainer, and, um, and our researchers getting decently paid as well. So yeah, that's kind of how the funding works, uh, and it's great to do. And and it's it's been really I think it's been nice to see people recognizing our work, and we kind of built momentum up, and we've been churning out reports on legislative prayer. I think we're at like seven or eight reports at this point, point. Um, and it's. It's a, it's a it's a pleasure to work on the project because we, we all kind of know the subject now and we can really dive into the the questions in a lot of depth. So yeah, let's shall we get to Manitoba? This is the, uh, this
1: <laughs> is the one coming. we're waiting
2: for, the, the most important one. one. Yeah, I, there I get some fun stuff on this one too. By the way, so there's 121 municipalities with a population of over a thousand in Manitoba, and for inaugural meetings, 11 of them opened with prayer. We couldn't find information for 20 of those uh, 20 municipalities. And there are five municipalities in Manitoba that still open their meetings with a prayer on a regular basis, and one of those cities is the largest city in Manitoba, the city of Winnipeg.
3: Yeah, I knew I knew the city had it. It's uh, been a, been contentious for some of our local activists here too. So.
2: It has, and and what's really interesting about that is, um, and the other one, by the way, is Steinbach. Um, no surprise here.
3: here. Really? Yeah, Nobody I
2: didn't know. Who really <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's really, for, for Manitoba, which I, Winnipeg, rather, sorry, is they, as a city, did a legal review after Saginay came out, and I I try to get a hold of this legal review. We put it in a Freedom of Information request, and we got uh, two beautifully blank pages that were completely redacted. Um, <laughs> but we got those pages, damn it. Um, <laughs> and they basically did a legal review that said that their process was fine and they didn't think it was a problem. Now, the Supreme Court says you cannot open a session with prayer and it clearly says that even an inclusive action with a secular prayer still excludes non-believers and therefore cannot be done. And I don't know how that could be interpreted any other way as to prohibit prayer in a, in a municipal council meeting. But,
3: when was the, their internal review done?
2: Uh, right after the Supreme Court ruling came out.
3: Okay, so was a- that was during Sam Cates' reign, that makes sense.
2: Okay, I don't know the internal local politics of it, yeah. but it was interesting. Um, apparently, it, we we only have it alluded to in the press, and so we were like, okay, well, you guys mentioned you did an internal review. We'd like to see this, please. And they're like, no, that's legal product. We can't share it with you. And it was two pages long, so, like, I don't know. We're weighing our reports. I mean, I don't know. Why. I'll tell you <laughs> I can take my 130-page report, and I'll weigh it against their two pages of... I would imagine quite flaky political, uh, legal analysis if um, if they, they somehow, I, I don't know how you can misinterpret Saganay but that's when I think um, one of our hopes with the work that we're doing on municipal prayer is to produce reports for each province that our activists on the ground can then use to, to try and effect change. And we've actually had a lot of change in British Columbia, I, I should have mentioned, that we wrote to all those municipalities across the province, the 23 of them that did open their inaugural sessions with prayer. And a number of them got back to us and said, we will change our procedures. Two municipalities actually passed bylaw amendments to prohibit opening their sessions with prayers. And, and most of them got back to us and said that we'll be considering this next time we, we do an inaugural meeting. Well done. Um, yeah, and we're gonna be watching them in 2022. So 480 days from now, when the next inaugural round of uh, municipal elections happen, and we're gonna keep an eye on them and make sure that, um, that they aren't opening with prayer. And at this point, they've received multiple letters and warnings. And so if you're still opening a municipal prayer, meeting with prayer after that number of warnings, then that would be a human rights tribunal case that I can't imagine would go any way other than prohibiting prayer because it's just so obvious in the, in the courts. Um, yeah, yeah so,
3: Saginaw is very easy to interpret.
2: It, it, I yeah, can do it. There's no leeway there, right? And it's, I mean, the only thing that's fuzzy about Saginaw is the parliamentary privilege and Saginaw threw up its hands when it came to dealing with legislatures in parliament. Fair enough, that's a conversation for another court case. But when it comes to municipal prayer, it's not okay in any context. Um, and so yeah, Winnipeg sort of, we're gonna invite a councillor to deliver a prayer of their own devising, doesn't work. Um, and it, it's not okay. And it violates Saguenay and they should know that. <laughs> so let's carry along across the country here. We're, we're in Ontario. Ontario, of course, has 370 municipalities with a population of over a thousand and 158 of those included prayer in their inaugural meetings, Whew. which is a lot. And this is not just a, like, it's quite a problem. We, we haven't finished transcribing all of those prayers because what we've done for each municipality where we've, uh, we've identified prayers, we try to find at least three random sample prayers to kind of get a flavor of what they are. Because some municipalities might just be, oh, it's a prayer, but you know, uh, I don't know, Gertrude reads a poem every month, right? Like that's, that's not quite the same as the Lord's Prayer or some of the Fire and Brimstone I was reciting earlier. But in, in Ontario, it's 158. And we've noticed something that we're calling stealth prayer. So they don't call them prayers, they now call them invocations or reflections. So, oh yeah, Saginaw prohibits legislative prayer, but not legislative invocations. Just because they're religious invocations, that's fine. It's not fine. Uh, (laughs) You know, when you're inviting people to deliver an invocation at the beginning of a meeting, and if that invocation is traditionally coming from one religious tradition and not others, you are treating them as a guest in that space, when everyone should be treated equally in that space, at the very least. And, And that's a huge problem. Um, And what's really interesting, too, is you actually have, like, after Saguenay comes out, a number of mayors in Ontario are on the record being quoted as saying, I don't care what Saguenay says, I'm still going to open with prayer. And, like, um, Laurie Beeman, who's an excellent scholar of, like, secular politics in Canada, um, has, like, quotes from these folks in her most recent book being like, no, no, we're going to keep praying anyways. No one's really followed up on that. and That's a problem because it's it's no longer, like, accidentally including prayer because no one knew better. It's, we're going to pray anyways, uh, you know, for defiance to the constitution. It kind of doesn't surprise
0: me that that's coming from Ontario, uh, the province that still has the publicly funded Catholic school boards.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's like, same thing with Alberta too, right? They've got their their, their publicly funded Catholic school boards. Right. I mean, and we've all seen the Ontario, in Ontario when they tried to abolish prayer in the legislature, this was, you know, as I mentioned in 2008, there was a huge outcry. It apparently crashed their government system, and they ended up reverting to to the compromise, which is Lord's Prayer plus another sort of standard sample prayer, uh, because it was so controversial. When it comes to things like the Constitution, it, you shouldn't have it put up to a, like a, a majority wins vote. It, it's you know that's not a good way of doing these kinds of things when it comes to protecting. Yeah,
0: kind of what was, the charter is for. It
3: was the same thing in eighty eight or eighty nine when they were. I grew up in Ontario, mm. and. Uh, 88 or 89 is when they brought in the no more prayers in school and that was uh, a hullabaloo in my northwestern community yeah uh, i'm from outside yeah. of thunder bay
2: And, and there's, <laughs> there's another, going back to in, in in ontario there was elmer sofa and this is before all of our times but elmer sofa was an mpp who opposed prayer and would, would exclude himself from the sessions and, and only show up after the prayer was delivered that was in 1969 right so and this is not a new thing across the country like people raise the concern every so often. So yeah, Dalton McGuinty's efforts to get rid of prayer in the Ontario Legislature was one of them. Um, two um, provincial legislature members in Nova Scotia in 2001 uh, tried to get it removed. I know in Regina, there's been two efforts from the Centre of Inquiry in Regina to try and abolish the process. There's a Green MLA in New Brunswick that tried to abolish the process in 2019. And so there's been a lot of sort of work on it, but it still hasn't really clicked in at the provincial and, and federal level. Let me take you across the country, friends. So here's one that's interesting. So in Quebec, we only surveyed 50 municipalities because uh, we only had our, our amazing uh, French-speaking volunteer f- uh, for, for for a summer. And also we found zero municipalities that started with prayer in their inaugural or general meetings. And wow. this was kind of consistent with the the trend we saw at their provincial legislature where they abolished prayer. There was lots of quiet reflections, but there were no prayers. And so we didn't press further beyond those 50, mostly because our, our poor, hardworking, Alexandra, our poor, hardworking French speaking volunteer uh, was also heading over to New Brunswick and, uh, and covering that province as well. And uh, so, yeah, that was kind of not surprising, but I think for those of you who are out there who, who do political science and study Canadian politics, we treat Quebec as sort of a separate entity when studying Canadian politics. And i really tend to have a deeper knowledge of uh, Quebec politics, because I haven't had a chance to go catch up with, with my friends out there in a while. Mm-hmm. So heading over to the Maritimes, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we had 50 municipalities. Uh, that was a top 50 by population because they started getting below a thousand at that point. One inaugural meeting with prayer, one general meeting with prayer, and uh, we we had a decent number we couldn't quite identify. And uh, same thing goes for Prince Edward Island. We had uh, again 50 municipalities because we hit we went below a thousand. And yeah, yeah, some of those are quite tiny, right? I and, was going to ask how, how you managed to hit 50 with PEI. Well, <laughs> 15, we, didn't,
0: didn't
2: we? we couldn't find out for 43 whether they had any in their inaugural meetings. Oh, we still wow. for 17 there. So, um, But none, none that we could tell opened their meetings with prayer in, in PEI, whether they were inaugural or otherwise. New Brunswick was actually quite interesting. There was a lot of diversity in New Brunswick. Again, 50 municipalities with populations going below 1,000. And we had four inaugural meetings with prayer, one with a poem. And then for general meetings, we had four meetings of prayer, four minutes of silence, five reflections, two prayers or reflections, and one opening word. <laughs> so <laughs> we're uh, we're going to look at the content of those and see what that actually meant, what that actually means in practice. Yeah, that um, would be interesting. Yeah, and and there's I think for research people the, the who are word listening today. Yeah. Well, for people who are listening in, and if you live in one of these provinces, going through those records and, and looking at the prayers themselves and doing analysis, and we're happy to share our methods with you would result in some really interesting information and shed light on practices that no one studied before. So if you're, you know, an undergraduate looking for a, an honours project or a master's student who's, who's desperate for a, for a thesis topic, uh, this is this could be one for you. And uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. And then just to wrap up uh, Nova Scotia, again, 15, 15 municipalities, population went below 1000. We had one inaugural meeting with prayer and six minutes of silence in general meetings, but nothing else. And unfortunately, our data for the, the north uh, the territories is a bit spotty. Uh, we only had eight municipalities in the Yukon in total. So we found no results for inaugural meetings or general meetings. We couldn't find information for one of them. Uh, in the Northwest Territories, we had 24 municipalities, one inaugural meeting with prayer, one general meeting with prayer. But again, 20, we couldn't find the information for. Um, so we, we couldn't get a lot of data there. And for Nunavut, uh, similar, similarly, one inaugural meeting with prayer, two general meetings of prayer, but we found 25 municipalities and most of those we couldn't find the data for them. So we're still we're still digging and we're still sort of looking for, for that information. And you know, the, I feel bad for the municipal clerk in a, you know, in a small town of like, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, the, the, in the Yukon there looking for uh, getting emails from us. <laughs> not, not really sure how to deal with them. But yeah, so that's kind Thanks. of the the overview. And so what we're, what we're planned to do is to, to, as I said, release reports for each of those jurisdictions, share them with our friends in in the humanist and secular movements to try to get that change. And then we're going to be working on a larger publication looking at legislative prayer municipalities in general, just to sort of share the results of follow through on on um, on, on the legislation, on, on, the, on the court case, because a lot of people don't follow through on, okay, we've got this court ruling, what do we do next kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people will also notice, by the way, like this isn't the only place that we still have prayer sort of sneaking into our society in ways that it shouldn't be. Like, for example, University convocations often open with prayer, those are publicly funded institutions. Um, And so one of our our members pointed that out to us. And we'd we'd like to work on that sometime in the future. But yeah, it's it's this interesting tendency, where and the reason why we looked at inaugural and regular meetings separately, was people seem to think an inaugural meeting is one that has more pomp, more, more, more kind of fancy, fancy kind of uh, procedural content. And so they'll include prayer as a way of uh, formalizing it, of, of solemnizing it. But of course, In so doing, you're excluding lots of people. So it's a sort of deep contradiction of we're going to make this a more solemn meeting by excluding people from it and discriminating and breaking the constitution. And that doesn't seem okay.
0: What can our listeners do
2: about this problem? Is there some way that they can help? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, the BCHA is producing reports for each province. So if you're a member of an organization or just an individual in one of your towns, look for those reports or get in touch with us now so we can connect you with the reports as we release them. And the plan is to equip our, our friends across the country with good research that they can then use to show that we need change in their municipalities. So if you, you get in touch with us, uh, check in if it, your municipality has prayer, or you may already know if it has prayer or not, it wouldn't take too long to go pop on your local municipal website and, uh, or go to a local meeting or tune into some of their, their webcasts if they have them. And that, that's, that's one thing that I think a lot of folks can do. And I think we're the, the BC Humanist Association. And so when we write a letter to the city of Winnipeg, asking for information, they have a reason to be recalcitrant insofar as like, we're just a bunch of people on the other side of a huge mountain range. Uh, but when a local voter gets in touch with them, that is more meaningful. So we really do need local people on the ground to carry the flag and, and push the issue. And so our goal is just to hand you powerful research that you can use to to make the world a, a more equal and secular place.
3: The cynic in me, who has attended, uh, tried to make change locally. Says they won't listen to the local person either. But maybe if <laughs> it was more than a few of us, they give a better uh, chance, at least.
2: The key thing here, though, is because we have such a strong ruling in the, in the form of saginay, that mm-hmm. that local person might need to be equipped to to go on, take it to a human rights tribunal. Um, that is a case that you you shouldn't lose. Um, and I think the one thing I would say to people is, if you are interested in pursuing these kinds of things through human rights tribunals, is please don't represent yourself. Please get in touch with the local group to get a real lawyer to represent you. I've seen too many cases of really well-meaning atheists fighting cases at Supreme courts on their own. They don't know what they're doing and they lose cases they shouldn't lose because they just didn't know the nuance of the law. It's I'm not a lawyer and I, I wouldn't feel comfortable arguing any of this stuff in front of a court. You need a lawyer to do it. So get in touch. We have some, there are pro bono lawyers across the country who I'm sure would step up to fight for this really good cause. But please don't, don't go to some of those tribunals on your own. Yeah, good um,
3: advice. Because those tribunals make precedence
2: as well. They do. And I don't know if folks were following, say, for example, the, the Church of Atheism case out in Ontario. And that was just a, oh, it, was, it was hard to read. I mean, there was the ruling was still informative insofar as the judge admitted that Canada lacks a definition of religion. And the definition that the Canada Revenue Agency was using kind of excluded Buddhists and any like non-theistic religions, which mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, but I think that case would have gone a lot differently if you'd had- a, Someone a, who a, was competent in the language of law. Yeah, and it's the, some of this stuff like, you know, we've been, we've been diving into these these cases for for years and there's still interesting, nuanced bits. And you're, I'm learning, I mean, we went to the, uh, the tax courts on clergy residency content and like, there's a, a wealth of content there, but it's, yeah, you can get lost in that quite quickly.
0: So we'll include links in the show notes, but uh, listeners who are so inclined can uh, find the research at bchumanist.ca.
2: Yeah, I guess I'd end with two things. One is you're asking for things that people can do. BC Human Association would love your support in a few of our projects. We're often looking for volunteers to transcribe tedious prayers. So if you're looking for (laughs) a fun COVID activity, let's jump in and listen to some prayers. Um, But we have another project. We have a host of projects that we're working on, and I'm sure I might hopefully talk to you folks in the future on some of these. You know, we're looking at tax policy, as I mentioned. Uh, I spent this morning talking about our Crisis Pregnancy Center research that we're looking into, which has been very eye-opening for me. We're working on a uh, invocation guide, and this is another one people can contribute to. So we're writing a guide to giving secular invocations. Because one of the challenges we had in submitting our, our content to the BC legislature was they wanted, okay, we would like you to submit sample prayers for your religious group. And we're like, well, we're humanists. The hell are we gonna do? Like. <laughs> What do, you, what do you want from us? You're like, we, we got to write some invocations. So we we cobbled together a couple of you know, relatively, I think they were quite decent, but somewhat terse <laughs> terse invocations. Some of them were a little bit more on the nose than others. Um, but we had a bunch of members reach out to us and say, like, I need to give an invocation at a funeral or at a, a graduation, and all I can, or, you know, at a, I'm a secular chaplain, I'd like to give a, a comment at an event, I don't know what to say. So we're working on a guidebook to giving secular invocations for whatever situation. And so we're putting together a list of quotes as part of that. And I would love for people to, and I'll, I'll share the link with you folks. I'd love for people to share their favorite secular quote with us because I've been plowing through these piles of books of quotes and so many of them are religious. Anything that's like more than five years is super sexist. And <laughs> we would love quotes from anyone who has like a secular bent Quotes that would be appropriate to open a, a meeting with, uh, a dinner with, say at a funeral, at a birthday, at a graduation, that are secular, uh, we'd love to have your feedback on that, your contributions to that. You can make them up yourself, by the way, they don't have to be a quote from a famous person, uh, they can be just from you, so I don't know, Lauren, if you've got a brilliant saying you, you're saying all the time, um, please submit it, we'd love to have it included in our, uh, our book.
1: As you were saying that, I uh, was reminded of a reading that I have bookmarked because I love it so much. and I'm just going to read it to you because it's short. It's by Starhawk. We are all longing to go home to some place we have never been. A place half remembered and half envisioned. We can only catch glimpses of from time to time. Community. Somewhere, there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere, a circle of hands will open to receive us. Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter. A circle of healing, a circle of friends, someplace where we can be free. And that's from Dreaming the Dark, Magic, Sex, and Politics by Starhawk.
2: Oh, I love it. I might, I might end with, it, just to wrap up our section with a quote from Saginay that I was trying to find earlier. It's not quite as evocative, but it's perhaps uh, more uh, more legislatively significant. <laughs> this is from, from Saginay, and it's, the state may not act in such a way as to create preferential public space that favors certain religious groups and is hostile to others. It follows that the state may not, by expressing its own religious preference, promote the participation of believers to the exclusion of non-believers or vice versa.
1: Here, here,
2: And that, my friends, again, is a democratic imperative.
0: <laughs> As we were setting up this interview with Dr. Phelps Bondaroff, we discovered that not only did he have uh, expertise in the area of legislative prayer, he had also been involved with uh, several of the organizations featured in Sea Spiracy, the documentary that we talked about last time on the show. In our next episode, you'll hear the conclusion of our interview with Teal, where we discuss his work with Oceans Asia and Sea Shepherd. Stay tuned for that next month. Thanks again to Dr. Phelps Bondaroff for joining us on the show today. Why don't we end this episode, as is our habit, with something nice. So who has something nice to talk about today? (laughs) Well, it's more of a something relieving than a something
3: nice. (laughs) I I ran an annual general meeting yesterday that was uh, less contentious on its face than I thought it would be. And nobody yelled at me. I managed to get... I was also doing all the tech support because we held it over Zoom because we are a responsible organization. And so I did all the tech support and ran the meeting and nobody yelled at me. So that's something relieving.
0: That is a lot to do both of those things.
3: Close to you. (laughs) (laughs) I had Ashlyn on background tech.
1: Some people tried to talk them out of this plan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Who else would I have gotten though? (laughs) But it went well. And now we have to do the work that we have promised to do over the next year. Okay,
0: well, here's to doing the work. I could also go with something relieving. <laughs> I, I am finally done my first year of medical school.
1: Yay! Um,
0: just returned from a week long rural rotation um, in uh, St. Rose du Lac. Oh, cool. And yeah, it was lovely. I got to slice and dice some people and sew them back up. <laughs> and uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, rural swirl... medicine is different. Yeah. Yeah. Was this rural ro-
3: rotation in a castle under Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein?
0: Were there leeches?
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it was just a, an excision for biopsy and three sutures. Okay. So, um, but uh, but it was it was fun. Yeah, I got a, got my first few procedures under my belt, and the preceptor was was really excellent. He put us on the spot quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But it was a it was a great way to learn. So uh, they put us up in residence there, and and it was a it was a pretty nice setup. Very cool. Th- there's something nice that I brought to the table today is hidden object games. <laughs> I just uh, I I like them a lot, and uh, I was feeling pretty stressed out yesterday, and so I went to one of my favorite little websites, Buried Treasures which uh, reviews indie games that don't get a lot of coverage, and uh, read a review for a hidden object game called Find All. And it's a, it's a lovely little game, just costs a dollar on Steam, and it, it's just, you know, finding stuff in this quiet little town. Picture starts black and white, and it slowly colors in as you find all of the things it's asking you to find. And, you know, it only took 15 minutes for me to defined everything there was and the game was done, but it was a very pleasant experience, uh, meditative. And actually, this morning, uh, before school, I sat down with Kieran Huxley, and we all sort of played through it together again, and the kids really liked it. And that was nice, probably the best known and maybe most widely respected entry in this genre these days is hidden folks, which you can find on uh, mobile devices and uh, and on PC. And I definitely recommend checking that out. It's uh, it's much, much longer and more involved than this one. It's like an interactive kind of Where's Waldo. But I don't know. It, it's the sort of thing that sometimes when I just want to relax, it's a really pleasant way to do that.
1: Lauren has a couple of those games on their phone. And sometimes I look over their shoulder and I am like so hopeless at them. <laughs>
3: Aww. I haven't played one in a in a while. I don't think I've got them on my phone anymore, but I go through a fits and starts with games like that. Sometimes they're good and
0: sometimes they amp up the anxiety. So I'm glad yours
3: <laughs> dialed it back for you.
0: This one uh, find all is certainly less overwhelming than Hidden Folks Hidden Folks has, you know, like probably 15 to 20 different images which are all a lot bigger than the one in find all Mm -hmm. but find all is much more approachable and it's only a buck and so i recommend checking it out if it's something that you like you can maybe move on to hidden folks awesome very cool i can go next my something nice is my garden i am enjoying that I've been spending a lot of time outside since we're still locked down here. There's really not much else to do in the evenings and weekends. And it's given me opportunity to work on the yard and my garden and just be outside and get to see some things grow and like that.
3: Laura and Jem's garden is already pretty fabulous. So I can't (laughs) wait to be able to come over and see it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And Laura gifted me a few plants to put in my garden, which I also am enjoying very much. I was out there a long time today, uh, planted all of our potatoes in my potato growing bags. This is the first time I'm trying to grow potatoes. And got
3: a bunch of other donated plant babies in the big raised bed.
0: (laughs) Cool. That's exciting.
3: All of our gardening implements are other people's cast off plants.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you've got a trend going here. (laughs) Mm.
3: So yeah, we being broke. <laughs> yeah, we put our garden in a little bit like the le- the week after everybody else does and then we just take whatever people are willing to offer.
0: <laughs> You're like a a plant orphanage.
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes we uh aren't a very good orphanage though. <laughs> well, Some of my tomato babies got taken out by those horrible cutworms. They're uh like moth caterpillars and they crawl along the soil and whatever they encounter they just like chomp it down so i went out there and there was a couple of tomatoes that were just like totally fallen over cut clean through it's just oh so annoying it's like you didn't even eat it yeah yeah but my something nice is related to being too broke to buy plants for a garden we are still in the worst wave of the pandemic here in manitoba uh we are so far pretty strict restrictions and, I mean, there's no possible way it could get worse. Like, I don't usually want to jinx things like that, but come on. (laughs) Okay. We're we're up to, what, 60% vaccinations? Everybody's got one dose anyway, except for Dan and Winkler. So, but anyway, I was thinking that I might have to go and start working for Skip the Dishes again because my typical yearly cycle is that I will make more than I spend throughout the year and then during the summer when I have things like uh, Viking Village and Hostfest, I pay off my credit cards and start again. And this will be the second June that has no Viking Village. So I was in pretty rough financial shape, but I went over to my parents to pick up a wheelbarrow to uh, do some things to our front yard and They gifted me enough money from my grandmother's estate that I can pay off my cards, so I no longer have to go drive around giving people food in order to make it through this pandemic, unlike other people for whom I feel very deeply. Yeah. Yeah, it was really nice to have that large burden taken off of my mind, and today I was able to just work outside joyfully without worrying about you know the 25 dollars i spent on potato bags and whether that was a good investment that's nice nice.
0: well thanks for joining me tonight folks
1: thanks jim thank you
0: have a great
3: night (laughs) good night good night night
0: folks life the universe and everything else is produced by jim newman and ashlyn noble with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.